is totally irresponsible parenting. Not according to the internet. Where on the internet? Dax, it's time for your bath. But I miss my show. Don't argue with me, young man. Just do it. This is our dad. I'm the professor. Yeah, he made us in his laboratory by accident. Don't worry, professor. I was an accident, too. You're my children, and I love you, but you're all terrible. Mr. Dominic Young people, 
young kids or young people and wild animals. It has to be in the moment. <laughs> no. They're gonna they're gonna tell you that you're not in the moment. They're either gonna, you know, whack you on the side of your head or you're gonna get bitten or something or something. So I like being in the moment. So maybe wild things is the is the biggest definition you see. Yeah. What I love is that that showcases your evolution. You had this thought or lack of thought that you could be something and then become something even <laughs> more based on that. And that's a beautiful thing, right? Yeah, man, you gotta follow your passions, you know, because if you follow your passions, then it never really feels like you work because you would do it for free. Anyway, I always wanted to act and, you know, I would, I would do it for free, don't tell my agent. But <laughs> I, I would do it for free, I love doing it. Um, and it's the same with animals. I, I keep animals, I keep a whole bunch of different animals, I, you know, I tend a pretty interesting garden, and I sat down one time with a producer, and he made different types of shows, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, look, I have all these ideas for animals that I want to see around the world, and hopefully change the ideas of people who are scared of classic kind of nightmare animals, like sharks and spiders and snakes and bees and wasps and stuff like that. My vibe is, if you're an animal lover, if you claim to be an animal lover, it's not a selective group, you know, you don't say, I'm an animal lover, so that means I love dogs and cats and horses and donkeys and rabbits and things like that. If you're an animal lover, you have to love leeches and snails and slugs <laughs> and spiders. Otherwise, don't wear the bags, don't wear the bags. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm passionate about. I love that, I love that. Do you have, I know this is a crazy question, do you have an animal that really kind of sets things off for you to go, this is my passion? Um, well, I mean, insects are probably my thing, just because if you like animals and you want access to, it's true, right? <laughs> um, if you like animals and you want access to animals as much as possible, insects live Everywhere. in your garden, they live in your bathroom, they live in your carpet, they live on your eyelashes, sorry to tell you guys. Yeah, there are certain animals, yeah, yeah, no, you're certain yeah. animals that live in our eyelashes, uh, and you know, they don't cause any harm, they're actually good for the health of your eyes and stuff like that. So I don't know, I, I just felt like if I, you know, because I'm obsessed with all animals, but I was like, if I want to be around them all the time, then I'm going to lean into invertebrates. So reptiles and insects are kind of my jam, but don't get me wrong, I love horses and dogs and birds of course, of course. And, you know, whales and polar bears and stuff. <laughs> I'm just giving you a stay here right <laughs> so going back to, the, to your acting though, okay, so once you realize that this is a pathway that you can follow, right, um, there's many different ways for you to go. You can do voices, you can do theater, you can do uh, TV, movies. What drove you to your first audition? Was it just opportunity or did you know? Um, yeah, I mean, well, the reason why I became an actor was Star Wars, but obviously I didn't think, uh, you know, wow, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be an actor and immediately get involved in, like, space operas and stuff like that. You know, I, I, um, I love Star Wars. I still continue to love Star Wars. And, and then when I realized, yeah, when I realized that, that Han Solo was also Indiana Jones, I couldn't figure that out. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, seven or eight. Teachers told my parents that I like really dug it and wanted to do it more. 
was pretty adamant about doing more and more plays and then I played football a lot as a kid and I got injured one summer so I couldn't play football and then I, I joined two youth theatres and again it was, you know, I was kind of cocky when I was younger and I like forced them to like do this play and give me this part which I never do nowadays, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you wouldn't have to now. I know but it's a pretty heavy swing as like a 12 year old to be like, you should do this play but I should play this part, you know, that's what I did. <laughs> pre-internet, so this is kind of aging me, but um, I did this play at Manchester Youth Theatre, which is like the second biggest youth theatre in the country, outside of National Youth Theatre, and I went to my local library, and I had all of the agents in the north of England's address printed down, I just had it printed down, like a little and then I borrowed a typewriter from my school, and I wrote you know, this letter out like 20 or 30 times. Dear Sir Paul Madden, my name is Dominic. I am doing this play on these dates. Please come and see me. And, um, and uh, I mean, I don't know, but like, I think like three of them came. Yeah, which is not a lot, out of, you know, out of like 20 or 30. And then two of them offered to represent me, and I went with one. And then I had one audition for a soap opera in England called Emmerdale Farm, which I didn't get, and I was like, Devastated. <laughs> um, and then second audition I got, and then you know that was it. I started working for the BBC. Worked for the BBC for like four years, and you know haven't really stopped working since then. Which is been okay. Come on now. When you're 12 and you're telling people that you should do this play and you had that outcome, I think you were right. I don't think that you. Am I wrong? then you, you make all those mistakes when you're a kid right. and you figure out what you should or shouldn't be doing as a kid. So by the time you get to 16, 17, 18 when things are starting to get serious, you know, you, you've been in the trenches for four or five years figuring it out. I was making the big mistakes that you make as an actor when I was 10, 11, 12, 13 on stage at my school. <coughs> not, not speaking with clarity, forgetting my lines, jumping into other people's work doing their performance instead of mine, you know, <laughs> trying to overshadow people. Making all those terrible mistakes that you make as an actor. So by the time I was actually working on the TV when I was 18, there was a little bit of owning of what I, you know, should or shouldn't be doing, which I needed because I then ended up working with a fantastic actress called Patricia Rowling in a, in a, yeah, in a TV show called um, Hetty Wake Up Investigates. Very catchy title for a TV show. And, um, you know, she was amazing and a great teacher, but she was extremely strict, extremely strict like a matron. Don't do that, don't do that. And I was like, oh, okay. And I think she would have done it like 20 times more if I hadn't have started to work out some of those things that I shouldn't do. Exactly, see? Get on, get on. I agree. I love that. Now moving into international film, um, was that a different process from, you know, being a little bit more homegrown? Did, did, uh, Acts of Hollywood didn't change anything for you, or were you like, oh no, this is this is still just acting? No, not really. It's, it's all kind of the same. I would approach it the same. I mean, it might be a little bit more exciting, you know, okay. if you go from doing like a BBC One show, which was extremely exciting, yeah. to then doing some English films, great. But then, yeah, starting to do a film, you think, oh, this is going to get seen in the United States, this is going to get seen in whatever, Australia. 
yeah, that's kind of exciting, but I don't, I don't approach my work any, any differently. It's right. still learn your lines, hit your marks, do your research, know what you're doing, you know, go to bed early, eat right, go to the gym. Um, you know, you have to take care of yourself. It's long hours, you know, an average good day when you're working with the scene, I'm usually getting picked up somewhere around about 5.30, usually getting home around about 7, 7.30, you eat your dinner, I pull my dial out for the next day, make sure I know what I'm doing, fall asleep by 9.30 or 10, and then you just repeat, and then at the weekend, you know, you just like, go to the gym, make sure you're eating well, make sure that you're not getting sick, because the other thing is, it doesn't matter if you get sick. That was one of the cruel things to do when I was younger. If you're sick, they're like, okay, still picking up at 5.30, you know, like, we'll, we'll give you hot, lemon and honey and ginger in between takes and you can lie down but you still have to know your lines and you still have to act like you're not sick so you can't be kind of talking like this and seeing the snotty nose you have to like figure out where to not seem like you have a sinus infection so you have to be well most of the time what a boot camp what a boot yeah, camp yeah so no no that's brilliant though um, okay, so in terms of some of the many wonderful, you know, talents that you've co-starred with, do you have any you know, particular favorites that you've really enjoyed the experience? And you just talked about some of those very strange. Did you have others that you were just like, this is fun and I love? Well, I mean, Billy's the best. Billy's definitely the best. I mean, just in terms of like, you know, people in my life who can read my mind and I can read theirs, you know, that kind of like they can finish my sentences, we're just vibing on each other, we know what's going on, it's all love, there's all good intentions, but you know, sometimes you have to kind of oh, explain, oh, I meant this with the joke, or oh, I was going in this direction, I never do that with him, he just knows, he just gets it, he's a great actor, he's a great human, um, you know, I was a big fan. My favorite film ever is Apocalypse Now, so I got a chance to work with Martin Sheen yes. when I was younger, which was extraordinary. And you know, we were able to talk about that film. And um, Max von Sydow was in that film, who's you know one of the great European actors. Um, Hugh Jackman was really fun to work with, and really <laughs> amazing to watch him working at close distance because you know he was obviously the lead in Wolverine, and he had a crazy responsibility on that. Film because he was also one of the producers and he was hosting the Oscars at the time. Mm -hmm. So he was rehearsing. So we were in Sydney. We would finish on a Friday. He would jump on a plane, fly to LA, rehearse on the Saturday, Sunday, then fly Sunday night back wow. to set and come to set Monday morning. And he was exhausted, but he was always in a great mood and he was always chipper and he looked like a Dreamboat. <laughs> <laughs> a good movie too. Come well, on. come on. I'm stood next to Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman. Everyone looks like an onion. Extraordinary <laughs> <laughs> physical specimens. I mean, Ryan Reynolds, he's a beast, you know. And next to Hugh Jackman, he looked small. So <laughs> I genuinely did. And Hugh Jackman's like doing press ups before the take in like a, a you know a vest type thing. And he'd stand up and they'd put the clapboard on and I'd be stood next to him. Some crazy alchemy that we have. Of course, there was something going on. I 
<laughs> who knew? Who knew? It's a new shot. It's a new shot. Um, okay, obviously, we should talk about Lord of the Rings just a little bit. Um, that was a huge undertaking. When it came out, it was monumental, changed the game. Did you guys have any idea of what scale this was going to be when you got hired on? Yeah, I think we knew a little bit about the scale. I mean, I, I landed with John Lee Davis. We were on the same flight, and um, uh, you know, I thought that we were going to get maybe two days or so to get over this crazy, crushing jet lag, which right. I've never had to that degree before. You know, um, Manchester to London is an hour. London to LA is twelve hours. LA to Auckland is twelve hours, and then Auckland to Wellington is an hour. So you come off that flight, and you're like, what? <laughs> you literally lost like three days. Yeah, it's hectic. And we we went to the hotel, and then we got a phone call saying we're gonna pick up in an hour, and I was tripping, you know. Just like, <laughs> space down. And we went, and we saw Pete, and uh, Pete was like, "Do you want to see Bag End?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course I want to see Bag End." I mean, you know, I know these books, I know this mythology, so. We went and saw Bag End, complete with like scarves on, on coat hangers and half written maps and pipes and all this kind of stuff. And it was extraordinary and brilliant, and the attention to detail was overwhelming. And then he said, Do you want to see Gandalf's Bag End? And I was like, uh, Okay, uh, I didn't know what that meant, you know. I'm just kind of following around the corner, and now we see an absolutely perfect version of Bag End, complete with the scarves and the maps and the pipes. and the rugs on the floor, but everything's smaller, <laughs> so the beam can come in and seem so much bigger. And John, he stated, and Pete kind of walking through this thing, and John's like, <laughs> and uh, I was just like, I was just speechless, I was just stunned, you know, just like, wow, I've, I've never seen one of these sets like this, let alone two sets right. that are identical. And um, I think at that point, I was like, oh, this is the biggest thing that I've ever worked on, and will always be the biggest thing that I've ever work on it, it became this mm -hmm. pop culture, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's like, you know, they talk about catching lightning in a bottle type thing with those movies, it just, it caught fire in a way that, of course it's a great film, objectively, they're great films, but catching fire like that, and, and, and you know, like, things like, you know, Mordor and The Ring and Gollum and My Precious kind of moving into pop culture, that was, that was really interesting. Wow, that's awesome, that's awesome. I love that you said that you were very familiar with the content. Um, like, how much of a super Tolkien reader were you? Like, super immersed? Like, you read The Hobbit and everything, or you knew Lord of the Rings? Um, yeah, I mean, my dad, obviously, child of the 60s in England growing up, so was Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, a big deal. And um, we lived in Germany when I was a kid, and we would come back probably twice a year, drive from Germany to the kind of uh, port, the shipping port, and then take a boat over to the south of England, and then drive up to the north of England. So that's like a 12 hour drive type thing. And we would listen to The Hobbit storybook tapes on the way there to keep us quiet. And then as we got a little bit older, we would listen to beautiful Ian Holmes version of the BBC version of The Lord of the Rings, which is, again, extraordinary. Yeah, and, yeah, amazing. And um, I remember saying to my dad when I was a kid, when I was like 11, 12, 13, should I read these books? And I was like, well, you actually should read these books. Of course. You might not be ready yet. And I think my dad didn't want me to start and then get dissuaded. He wanted me to read it and, and go all the way through with it. And, you know, as you guys all know, Lord of the is like this. You know, it's over a thousand pages. It's intimidating. So when I did read it, I, I just couldn't believe how well it was written and, you know, the work of a, of a true master. And I've, I don't think, well, I, I certainly have never felt so immersed in a world before. Of course, I, mean, like, yeah. I, I, 
couldn't believe how well Tolkien was able to capture the Shire or capture Rivendell or Loch Lorien or Edoras or any of these places and the characters were great and you know in a slightly bittersweet way of thinking about it now Mary's so much cooler in the books <laughs> it's true man Mary's the guy who tells Gandalf the code to open the door in Moria it's not Frodo it's Frodo in the film they do me dirty <laughs> Mary, Mary is the true warrior hobbit out of the four of them. You know, obviously, obviously Pippin, you know, does a lot through the war. He's not on the battlefield stabbing the witch king and, you know, almost burning his, his arm off and permanently damaging his arm. And, you know, Mary has a lot to do and, and he's just a little bit more prominent in the books. So I do, um, I do hold those books in, in high regard and, you know, I like Mary, he's kind of. <laughs> now, I know that there's some fans here that want to ask some questions, and I know we've got at least one microphone over there, I think there's one on this side, so I want to open that up for everybody, if that's cool with you. Yo, let's do it. Awesome, we'll start on this side. Hello, friend. Oh, Mike's not on now. Well, why don't we go here and then yeah, yeah, we'll see. fix this one. Let's have a good back. Try it. Hello? Hey, yeah! We'll come back to you, we'll come back to you. Universe, do you prefer to be in the Lord of the Rings universe or the Star Wars universe? Ooh. 
Yeah, I mean, they're both pretty beautiful. The difference for me is probably like, you know, obviously Star Wars is the reason I became an actor, but my experience on Star Wars, even though it was special, and you know, it's JJ, he's a friend of mine, and got a chance to hang out with Chewie and Artu and Sifuku and stuff. My experience on Star Wars was, was probably like 12 weeks, you know, like all in all. And that was like going off and having breaks and coming back and stuff. So it was extraordinary and I loved it, but it's hard to compare that with, you know, the principal photography of almost two years and then coming back every year for months at a time. So, of course, both those films are super important in my life, but the immersion of, of Lord of the Rings is just a little bit more significant. All right, thank you. Thanks, man. Great question. Hello. Yeah. Hello again, Don. Hello. Um, so, love you, Lord of the Rings, but I got to say, one of my favorite characters for sure is Charlie Lost. Right. Um, so, t talk to us a little bit about, you know, going from, you know, film to TV and development through that whole that whole series. I mean, from being a junkie to not coming to both. That's huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's right here. Yeah, it was a wild ride. You know, I, I met JJ. It was like three days before the Oscars when Return of the King kind of did that clean, sweet thing. And, uh, yeah, I met JJ. And, um, if you, actually, if you look at my nails when I'm at the Oscars, I've got the, my nail beds painted black because I thought it looked kind of rad. I called it like a reverse <laughs> French nail polish. <laughs> and when I, I met JJ like two days before the Oscars and he saw my nails and he was like, keep those, we'll use those in Lost. And we actually do use those in Lost. Yeah. And that was just me, just for the Oscars. I was like, oh, I want to get something cool going on with my nails. So life was imitating art very much. At the time, I was probably playing my life pretty fast and loose, certainly faster and looser. So I was probably a little bit more kind of, you know, staying up late and, um, you know, being probably a little bit more of a, of a rock star of sorts. So they probably <laughs> saw that a little bit. When I first met JJ for the last, there was no charge. You know, they wanted me initially to read for Sawyer because all the men were reading for Sawyer. Wow. Yeah. It's like a generic thing. They have a male role, they have a female role and, you know, when, we, when I finished meeting JJ, I was like, do you want me to read the scene? JJ's like, nah, well, there's no way that we're gonna have you play. So I created a different role. And I was like, okay. And I came like two weeks later, and then created Charlie. He was my age, he looked like me, he acted like me. And we did the screen test. Normally the screen test is two actors, so there was two Jacks, two Kates. Colby Smolders was testing. Oh. Uh, two Boons, two Hurleys, two Sawyers. There's only one Charlie. <laughs> I saw JJ walking, yeah, I saw JJ walking down the corridor and I was like, there's only one Charlie? And he went, yeah man, don't fuck it up. Yeah, and then we talked about Oasis, we talked about the Star Roses, we talked about the Verve, we talked about the Cure a little bit, we talked about these type of bands that are a little kind of maudlin and maybe a little bit kind of like swaggery cool and maybe they've had their problems with substances and stuff like that. And then we, you know, between JJ and Damon and, and the writers and stuff, they started to fashion this idea of like, what if this guy had the briefest glimpse of fame? You know, and how frustrating that must be to have had a hit, to have a single, to, to, to be on the cost of a career, and it's been snatched away from him. He's a frustrated artist. So we did that, and you know, obviously his, uh, his struggles with uh, drugs and stuff are, are well known in the show. I was, I was essentially trying to play him as a, bad, good guy. So I knew that he was good, but I was constantly trying to push the bad. Anytime you see Charlie in a hood, anytime you see him in his hood up, 
that's bad shouting. <laughs> <laughs> off to some shenanigans, you know. You, usually heroin or something you know, dodgy with you know the, the rest of the crew. And then as we got into season three, I kind of expressed a few kind of concerns about just being the guy holding the baby. Right. Claire's off having adventures. Jack and Sawyer and, and Locke and Kate and Hurley are all off having adventures, and I'm just on the beach holding the baby, which is beautiful. I love kids, don't get me wrong. But I was like, yeah, come on, this is supposed to be like Charlie had some stories too. So David then said to me, I think we found a way to write for you, write a great storyline for you, but it means that you're going to leave at the end of season three. And I was like, great. This is going to be my best crack of the whip that I'm going to get. Because, you know, other members of the cast, they might kill four of them in one episode or something like yeah. that. So I was like, okay, let's do it. I'll take it. And he started to preempt this, you know, you're going to die, Charlie. <laughs> and it kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And then, you know, we, we filmed the sequence for the, for the end. I love Walter. Walter's always been like really kind and nice to me. You know, I scuba dive, I surf, all this kind of stuff. So I felt very nurtured and took care of in the water, which allowed me to be vulnerable and, and do that scene and um, it's consistently talked about as being you know one of the saddest deaths in TV and mm -hmm. I'm super proud of it and uh, I think it was a great show. Yeah, break our hearts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hello friend, how are you doing? So clearly you have a lot of connection to the characters you play. Um, most of us are here for Lord of the Rings, so I'm going to ask a very big question. What's the moment you felt yourself connect most with Mary? Like you're like, that's my boy. This is me. I'm playing Mary. This is this is Mary. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's obviously in the fellowship, and I think one of the abiding uh, kind of positive aspects of Mary's personality is he's really there for his guys. You know, his guys obviously have been Frodo and Sam. They're his cousins. They're his family. They're his bros. He's there for them. He wants them to have a good time. He wants them to be taken care of. Clearly, he wants them to be safe. When it gets to a point where things are actually physically dangerous for them, it gets concerning for Mary. But ultimately, I think Mary kind of looks around and he's like, if these guys have, you know, a flag and a veil and, and some nice food to eat and everyone's happy and smiling, I'm in my element. And there's a few moments in Fellowship, you know, before it gets really hectic where you can just see Mary being like, great, these guys are okay. You know, we're, we're safe, we're at the fence and pony, we got here, we're out of the rain, it's warm. You know, we're having a, a pint, and, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's a great thing. And I think, again, because I always, I have tattoos that says, like, life imitates art, you know, which I, which I believe it does. I felt the same way on set, you know, I just felt that kind of protective thing about specifically Elijah, Sean, and Billy, who were together a lot, certainly for the first film. Elijah was exhausted, he had a lot to do, there was a lot of pressure. You know, Sean did not physically feel great. He's, you know, he had to be a lot bigger than he was comfortable with. And, you know, Billy and I were reading each other's minds at that point. So I, I just thought, <laughs> like, as long as everyone's having a good day, I would look around and be like, are you good? Are you good? Are you good? Okay, I'm good. And that kind of felt like a crossover between Dom and Mary. So that's what it kind of locked in for me. That's awesome. Thanks, Thank you. Hello. Hello. So um, another Mary-themed question, um, just sort of going off of you saying Mary is cooler in the books, and let me also say, you know, like justice for Fatty Bulger, where was he? Um, but are there any specific scenes from the books that you would have wanted to act out as Mary but didn't get the chance to? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a few sequences that it made sense that uh, Pete decided to not have them, but you know, there's. Um, 
there's a sequence with, with the Barragans where, you know, obviously the Hobbits find themselves in, in harm's way, which would, would obviously have been a really great thing. The character Tom Bombadil is not included in the mm. films. Oh. It kind of makes sense. I mean, look, when, when the Hobbits end up with Tom Bombadil, they're there for a long time, months and months past, where they're in safety. And you just, you simply can't do that in a film. You need things to keep moving. Otherwise, as an audience member, you just go, well, they're fine. They're just, you know, picking daisies and eating cheese. Why are we watching this? It's nonsense. You need them to be in peril. So I understood why Tom Bombadil was not included, but he is a fascinating character. The forest, he's like, look, you know, walls come and go, and I, you know, I'm here, and the forest is safe, and I'm cool. Is it a little bit like Tree did in that regard? I think if you, someone had asked me who would take, who play Tom Bombadil if he wasn't going to be, and I was like, Mark Rylance would be an amazing mm -hmm. Tom Bombadil, you know. He has that kind of like whimsy yeah. to him, you know, slightly absent-minded type vibe. Um, so that, and then obviously we've talked about it ad nauseum, but like the Scarab of the Shire would be legitimately epic, you know, mm -hmm. you've got Merry and Pippin coming back, having learned what it means to be in a war and, you know, organize things and they start to organize things and Frodo and Sam pick up the speed with them and they, you know, rouse Saruman and his bad guys out of the Shire and clean it up, you know, and unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but the way that they dealt with Saruman in the film was completely different, so mm -hmm. it's difficult to see that. You do see Mary Pippin, Frodo and Sam kind of coming back into the Shire in their warrior regalia, so it's a little nod towards it, but of course that would have been a great thing to see. Great question. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. You can pull the mic down if it's too heavy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, um, my question is um, I'm sure that you and the other Hobbit actors from Testing, Denver's a pretty crazy high energy city. I mean, we've seen it at the convention. I was wondering um, what do you have any, like, any crazy or memorable, like, or just like one anecdote about like, being in Denver? Um, well, I mean, it's weird when you come to these places when you're working because you don't tend to see them as much as you would like, you know. We did go for dinner the first night. I mean, I mean the guys are okay with it, but I, I was pretty adamant that, like, we should go for dinner every Friday night because we're going to be working all day Saturday, all day Sunday. You know, Elijah leaves tonight, Billy and Sean leave tomorrow morning, so, you know, you don't get that many opportunities to go for dinner. Of course, we're tired, we've been traveling, but, you know, it's important. So we've had some great dinners thus far. We went to a place called Three Saints Revival on Friday night. And, you know, we basically just said to this uh, waitress who came over called Maggie, um, <laughs> we were like, we just bring us stuff. Just bring us food. You know, we'll eat it. Just bring us whatever's good out of the kitchen. So she started like bringing stuff. And, um, it became kind of a bit of a, a hot tea feast. <laughs> <laughs> Sean really wanted to ride a scooter back. Oh. <laughs> and he couldn't find a free scooter and he was not happy that we had to walk for like half an hour or so. But I was taking pictures of us all and we You know, those are the precious moments. We all live in California, you know, we all live in LA and we make big plans to see each other, but you know, people have families and people have responsibilities and it doesn't work out as much as we want. So I just kind of said, look, every Friday night that we land, we have to go for dinner. So after this, we go to Chicago next weekend, then we go to Boston and Toronto, and we figured out dinner. 
at all of these places. So yeah, nice. those of you who you know, if you, if you compare your friendships with them to the Ninja Turtles, <laughs> which turtle is each of you? Yeah, I'm not as well versed on the, on the Ninja Turtles as, like, Sean obviously played the Ninja Turtles. He did, he did. Um, well, well I'll, you guys can tell me. I mean, who's the, who's the organizer of Ninja Turtles? Who's, who's well, you got the leader, Leo. right? Leonardo's Leonardo. the leader. So, that's, so that would probably be Elijah, just because he is the de facto leader of okay. Elijah, you know? We all release tension on the rope here and there, but I think all in all, if Elijah says, no, no, we're going there for dinner, we're like, oh, okay, we're going there. <laughs> <laughs> and, then we, and then we do it anyway. So, okay, so that's Elijah, so that's, that's obviously, yeah, Donatello, who's the geeky one. Okay, go on. We've got Raphael, who's the attitudinal one. And then, then we have Michelangelo, the party animal. So I'm probably Michelangelo. <laughs> 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 Donatello is the geeky brain one, and then Raphael is more attitudinal, I'll kick you kind of guy. So probably Sean Astin is the I'll kick you guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's me. Alright, I was just curious about that. Yeah. Hello. Hello, Ron. Thanks for uh, hey. scheduling. Uh, my question is, what was your most favorite and your least favorite part in Fallen Order 3? Um... Well, most of it is the friends you make, because I think that's the thing that you go through in life. That's the things that you take ultimately, right? I mean, the memories that you make, and it's usually with other humans, you know? So, certainly on rings, it's the, it's the friendships that you make, because they're tied up in your memories. So, these relationships moving forward with the fellowship and with certain crew members, and, you know, obviously with Pete and, and his family and stuff like that. And then what was, was it the worst, the hardest thing, the toughest yeah. thing? Uh, the worst part. The worst part? I had a really great time in those movies. The worst part? Um, I don't know, we had one day off a week, you know? So you, you used to like two days off a week normally. Right. So one day off a week, we worked Saturday, and then we would usually go out for dinner Saturday night. And then you wake up Sunday, and you have to do the laundry, and you have to pull your week's work and see what you've got, and then you have to tidy your house because it's an uh, absolute mess because you've just been sleeping in it and letting it go to ruin all week. And just the, just the free time was, was so short, you know, and then boom, you get picked up at 5.15 on the Monday morning. So I think probably just the lack of any free time was, was, was the most challenging, but I, I love that job. It was super. Great question. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Hello. Thank you, Mr. Nassi. appreciate it. Uh, I wanted to go back to uh, a little bit of the last piece. When you were in Lord of the Rings, it became this huge global phenomenon, and then you almost immediately went to Lost, which was a, a phenomenon on its own. Was that kind of jarring to go from phenomenon to phenomenon, or was it kind of like, this is just life now for me to going forward, I'm just part of these huge projects? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how connected I am to that stuff, <laughs> how much value there is for me to be personally connected to that stuff when things get big, when things get gnarly, you know, like, of course. I was aware of it. I was aware that like going out had suddenly got like a little bit more complicated than normal. I was not able to go to like bars or restaurants or you know wherever in the same way. You know, if you if you're going to like airports or hotels, you're going to expect to like be in those situations a little bit. But then it kind of got a bit weird. People outside their house and stuff like that. So oh, nope. yeah. Um, but I think for me personally, it's just important to not be connected to that. That's kind of an ego piece, you know. 
oh, now I'm famous. Oh, now I'm not as famous. Who gives a shit? It's no big deal. <laughs> I'm an actor. It's just what I do. It's like a byproduct. You know, it's like you drive a car, exhaust comes out the back. So it's like I'm an actor. And then the fumes of that is sometimes you're famous, sometimes you're less famous, sometimes you're more. So I don't, you know, it, it's, it is normal for me, you know. I've been quote unquote it, uh, experiencing some level of fame since I was 18, you know. So, you know, way more than half of my life I've, I've been in a place of people being like, hey, and I go, oh, hey, how's it going? And then I just keep going. You know? So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's weirder for my family, I think it was weirder for my mom and dad, they're used to it now, I think it was weirder for my brother, he's a little bit more used to it now. Sometimes my, you know, extraneous friends or family that are not used to it at all, they get freaked out by it, but I don't. I mean, you know, I, I can immediately see in a room if someone's going to come over to me. I can tell in a restaurant if someone's biding their time or if someone's going to take a picture. And, you know, I have family and friends be like, oh, someone's a rep. Oh, I recognize you. Like, yeah, yeah, I saw that like 25 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, so, yeah, it, it, no, it's not, it's not weird. It's just life, you know, and it's, I think it's important to not be connected to that. And some of the actors that I've known over the years that do seem a little fixated on like, I gotta do this, I gotta get big again, I gotta have this moment again, or I'm not quite as big as I used to be. You're in trouble at that point, do you know what I mean? Concentrate on your craft. If, it's, if it catches fire, great. If it doesn't, but you did the same job and you had the same integrity, then you're gonna be okay. Awesome, thank you. Thanks, Lou. Thanks for watching. I think having that balance is one of the reasons why we love you so much, because you are still something approachable in spite of all the things that you've created, so we appreciate that. Yeah. Lovely. Thanks. Yeah. Hello, friend. Hi there. Hey, so um, I'm a student studying biochemistry with a focus on environmentalism and conservation, and I want to say I really appreciate how you use your platform to promote um, environmentalism and conservation and your love for animals. Um, and I also wanted to just ask you, during the pandemic, I know that you did this live, um, I believe, and it was a huge source of comfort for me in my life, and I really appreciated how you spread love and kindness and mental health awareness during that time. Um, but I wanted to ask, did this at all influence you um, getting started in podcasting with Billy and starting a friendship, I mean, at all? Yeah, I mean, I think I had been talking to Billy about doing a podcast for a couple of years, and, and you know, Billy just was not as well versed on, on podcasts as I was, so it took a while for him to get there. But I, you know, I started to kind of say to him, you know, it's just the two of us just sat around for an hour, just having a conversation. Does it really matter where it goes, and we'll have fun with it, and, and it'll be great. And very quickly, you know, Billy picked it up. The this thing which is the Dom Isolation show, which I did during COVID, was, was really fun for me. But, you know, honestly, it was, it was helpful for me too. You know, I live on my own, have a bunch of animals around me, I have some responsibilities with those animals. But, you know, as I'm sure we all experienced during COVID, those days got long. Yep. You know, you weren't working, you were up at five in the morning sometimes, and you're like, man, I'm not tired. I'm not going to be tired until 10 o'clock at night. I need to fill my day with a little bit of structure. So, you know, the structure of meditation and breakfast and making Tea or coffee was huge, and then by the time it got to like 10 or 11, I was like, okay, what do I do now? What are my targets? What are my goals? And I just kind of thought, well, if I can talk about what's been helping me, that whatever, I watched this film and it was great, or I got into Lego, or I listened to this album and it was really fun, it will be me reaching out into this great void and seeing if anyone else was like, you know, having the same experience that, that I'm having. So it was a great source of 
concept for me too. I think maybe it proved a little um, kind of kind of proof of concept thing to the podcast guys to be able to say, oh well, if we add Billy into that this thing, which I did a couple of times, mm-hmm. uh, then we can see what the what the podcast is, you know. So yeah, it was a it was a really fun thing. Hopefully, everyone out there listens yes. to the friendship onion. I say it because it's Shane's, Shane's clock here, and I say it every so often, but like, you know, this is a strange industry in which it needs to be constantly growing, mm-hmm. and as soon as you plateau, then the company that you work with is like, eh, well, you, you were doing this, and now you're kind of doing this, and you get to a point where we just can't do it anymore, so it has, the beast has to be fed, <laughs> yeah. which is a cynical thing, but we have to consistently get more and more subscribers, so... Yeah. If you guys love the podcast and you want us to keep doing it, the way for us to keep doing it is to just consistently get more and more subscribers. So you guys can do it for us. Yes. So uh, thank you for that. Great question. What's, what's, it, what's it called, the last plug? It's called the Friendship Pony, which is the t-shirt that I'm wearing right now. Even if you don't listen to the podcast, just go subscribe to it and keep So unfortunately, I've been given a cue that we've run out of time. Oh. I'm so, so sorry. Unless you want to try to speed round it. Really yeah, speed round it. Speed round, speed round. How many more people do we have? Like I see one, two, three, four. How many do we have over there? Five over there? Come on, let's speed That's like nine people. You got it? Let's do it. Come on, I'll try it. I'll answer it as fast as I can. All right. Are we on this side? We're on this side. Go. Any possibility of a drive shaft reunion tour? Okay, the uh, PlayStation 2 are back at uh, Lord of the Rings 2000, where the game had uh, Easter eggs where you guys talk shit about each other, and it's a better game, or I don't even know who the better game is. Well, Elijah now has two very young children, you know, like a little, little baby and like a toddler, so Elijah doesn't play games that much anymore, so I think his gaming skills have fallen off. Billy really puts in a great effort, he's not a natural gamer, I'm going to say out of three of us, I'm probably the best game. <laughs> <laughs> you actually have a game too, so yes. You have a game too, <laughs> Oh, he actually broke his foot during that kick and everything. Right. Is there any fun facts or behind the scenes things that you wish would have that level of fame? Um, <laughs> I think, you know, the grog that, that Mary Pippin drink when we were like passed out and the Orokai like feeling like, his grog and stuff? That, I believe, was um, prune juice and some sort of fizzy soda that was made to go flat. So it was like heavily sugar. Like, so oh. That's not that. Do you uh, have any interactions with any of the animators or effects um, artists during the creation of Lord of the Rings? Um, I mean, obviously, we were in and out of Wetter Digital, and they would show us these incre- uh, incredible programs like Massive, which was developed by Wetter, you know, crowd stuff. So we saw that in its infancy, and then obviously watched it with Helm Steve and watched it with the writer of Rohirrim and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, when we go to New Zealand, Usually we'll go in and out of wet to physical and wet to digital once or twice, and they'll generally show us like, woohoo, check it out, this is what we're doing now. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Considering your Friendship Onion podcast, have you, Elijah, Sean, and Billy ever considered doing a D&D campaign? Woo! Yeah, we, we, did, we did pitch that to those guys. Obviously, they don't have us. You know, getting the four of us together is difficult outside of these conventions and stuff. In, initially, you know, years ago, I had said to Elijah, we're going to do a podcast together, and Elijah's like, ah, I'm not sure if I'm kind of going to jump into the podcast world. And then from there, obviously, you know, it, 
it became something that Billy's into. The only reason why I asked Elijah first was because Elijah listened to podcasts, Billy really didn't, and then you know, Billy started doing it. But I think we'll always have Billy, uh, sorry, Elijah and Sean coming back with an open invitation, maybe we'll do some sort of Christmassy thing. The other thing is like, a lot of, lots of times people online are like, why have you not invited Orlando? Why have you not invited Label? We've invited all of them. <laughs> <laughs> they all have an open invitation. So it's not as if we've selected and said we don't want these people. Everyone has been invited. Lots of people are busy. Lots of people don't want to do it. That's fine. It's up to them. But they've all been invited. Thank you so much. Thanks. And I'm saying, what was your take on the meaning of the ending of Lost? Ooh. Uh, this was supposed to be quick. <laughs> I stopped watching the last halfway through season two, so I'm going to say I'm the wrong person. You've got to ask JJ. Yeah. I mean, he was there at the time. Yeah, he writes it. That's like asking uh, Huckleberry Finn, you know, what does uh, Mark Twain's work mean? Like, he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> last one. Yeah, good one, good one. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah? There's no one there. Yeah, yeah, we got it. Oh, there is someone there. We got someone there. Here's some money. Go see a Star Wars.